Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness, the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious." Almighty God, Prince of Peace, what we often see with our earthly eyes and hear with our physical ears may tell us a different story about your reign from heaven. Give us vision to see the wolf lie with the lamb in our day and courage to walk the path of peace in the face of chaos until the earth is filled with knowledge of you as the waters cover the sea. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, to whom, with you and the Holy Spirit, be honor and glory, now and forever. Amen. Well, welcome everyone to City Beautiful Church. This is the second Sunday in Advent. Advent is a word that means coming or arrival. And this is actually the beginning of the church calendar when we start telling the story of Jesus all over again in a way that his story washes over us, that it transforms us, and that it actually interprets our lives. And so in this season of Advent, we begin with this expectation, this preparation, for Christmas when we celebrate the coming of the God revealed in Jesus. And each week we have a theme. So last week um, we began talking about hope, that the hope that you and I have in Christ is not a kind of vague wish that maybe things will be better tomorrow, but it's actually this confidence that God is going to finish what he started in Jesus 2,000 years ago. And today we're going to be focusing on peace, and I think peace is definitely one of those words that we all kind of agree it's a good thing, but when it actually comes to defining what peace is, uh, we maybe struggle. And I think still more often when we find the, the vision of peace in Scripture, we're not exactly sure what to label it. Because for many of us, if we're honest, peace simply means the absence of conflict, the absence of war. 
But if we're really going to live into this Advent season, this open expectation for God to reveal himself all over again in the story of Jesus, we have to come to a central understanding of what does God mean when God says peace. And so then my main thesis for you today is this, that the peace we have in Christ is the antidote to a world that would keep us divided. I love this prophecy from Isaiah chapter 11. It's filled with so much imagery that when you and I read it, we hear all of these different contradictions, especially when it comes to the bit about the animals lying down, all these animals that in the kind of status quo everydayness of the world are are kind of literally at each other's throat. So this idea of a a child leading or this idea of, you know, the waters uh, covering the sea. Um, And I think that that's intentional. I think what the prophet is doing here as a poet, is giving us imagery that goes beyond our assumptions of how the world is supposed to work. Because it's only through igniting our divine imagination that we can begin to receive from God a vision for a better world. Because if we don't have that sense of imagination, we get stuck just accepting the world the way that it is today and not believing that anything will get any better. And as, in the same way that we spoke about that being a very hopeless way to live our lives last week, uh, today I want to say that that is the root of the lack of peace in our world today. That this is a powerful prophecy full of contradictions, these seeming uh, images that are at odds with one another to give us that push that we need to enter in and to receive a vision of peace. In that prayer um, that we pray here as we're lighting that second candle of Advent, you can kind of see we're beginning to get a little bit brighter and a little bit brighter in this dark season that now we have these two candles lighting our way um, that we call Jesus the Prince of Peace. And this is actually from an earlier chapter in the prophet Isaiah in chapter 9. He's called the Prince of Peace. And what we recognize in the baby Jesus is the one who was inaugurated to bring peace on the earth. I say this as, of course, a train is plowing by and and causing disruption. But the early church recognized, just as they had this tremendous amount of hope in the midst of trial, they were also called not just to maintain but to reveal a sense of peace uh, that had been won for them in Jesus, that was the antidote to this world that has been torn apart by divisions of every kind. And I think the first century church, just as the 21st century church, was a place of diversity. But you and I know very well that wherever diversity exists, there's going to be tremendous amount of conflict. And so when we recognize today the conflict we have within you know, our immediate community, a city beautiful church, or between one church and the next, or within a city, or even the American church, and we see all the conflict and all of these seemingly insurmountable divisions that we have within our church based on race or ethnicity or socioeconomic status or denomination or our um, uh, understanding of scripture or our doctrine, whatever it might be, when we begin to see that we're in deep trouble right now, and that we're not living out that peace 
that we somehow know we're called to, I think we can actually incline our ear to the first church and really hear that call from St. Paul, not that they are living out a different reality, but that they had those same internal struggles that we do. So the, the passage that I want us to look at today is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 18. And this is where Paul is really laying down this grand vision of what the work that Jesus was actually sent here to do looks like in the presence of God's people. And as I'm reading this, I want you to listen for kind of the two stages of peace that we understand. First of all, there is peace with God. We call it intimacy in our church. Uh, it, means, it means togetherness. It means harmony, shalom. Um, that first stage is peace with God, but then it's also peace within the people, peace within humanity. So this is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 18. Therefore, and remember, I said even last week, whenever you hear therefore, you need to go back and read whatever point Paul was making beforehand. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision. So another way to say that would be you're called Gentiles by those who consider themselves uh, Jews which is done by the, in the body by human hands. Remember, at that time, you were separate from Christ. So that's our first understanding of the antithesis of peace. You were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away... Another wonderful way to understand that lack of peace, closeness, and togetherness. You who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. And I love that language, the way Paul is continually weaving together these two forms of peace, that through Jesus, he himself, I love, he himself is our peace. So we say, what is peace? Peace is Jesus. But that these dividing walls of hostility that, that we erect in our human systems that are based on value, that we value one group of people over and above another. We think these people are more important than those people or these people can't get along with those people. Whatever those dividing walls of hostility are, that the work of Jesus is to come and to bring down those walls and then lead two disparate groups of people into a sense of unity that can only be won through understanding who we are now in Christ. But not only that, that as we are put together as the body, we are also brought into intimate relationship with God, that Jesus is our peace with God. We now have access to the Father by the Spirit of Jesus is the way that Paul puts it. 
And I think what we find here that I think is so important for us to understand what we mean when we say peace is we're not just talking about an absence of conflict. We're not necessarily talking about even um, agreement and a being of one accord in terms of the things that we say that we believe. When we say peace, what we are recognizing is that peace um, has been won for us in Jesus, but the world just doesn't know it yet. If he himself is our peace, peace is not something that you and I strive for. Peace is something that you and I work to reveal because it's already been granted to us. And so I think for Paul, for the early church, and for us in the 21st century, then we recognize that worship of God is integral to living a peaceful life and understanding how we are called to live with one another. Because it's as we worship God, as we pledge allegiance to Jesus as our king, we begin to let these tribalistic notions that we've grown up with fall to the wayside. And all of a sudden, those ranking systems of humanity no longer seem as important as the pursuit of God together. You know, and this makes me wonder, where, where does violence come from? Is, is violence inherent to our human nature? Is it a learned behavior? And I don't necessarily have a good answer for that, but I, one of the things that I think so often happens is that as human beings, we choose violence when we think it's up to us to fix the world. Because then all of a sudden we're talking about our vision of how we think things should be. And when other people don't conform with our understandings of how the world is, we tend to enact violence, whether it's through our actions, through our words, through the, st the structures that we build in the name of civilization. This is where violence comes because we believe that it's our job to, to fix, to build, to improve, to pursue a sense of utopia. And I think as I reflect on 2020, I see a, a, a world in, with tremendous violence. Again, if God is continually apocalypsing, revealing things that have always beneath, been beneath the surface, but because of our addiction uh, to comfort, we haven't always realized it. It's only in the strife and the struggle of 2020 that we've begun to see where the root of violence exists, not just within our church, but within our nation as well. And I think, you know, for me, this revelation came just a couple months ago, um, kind of in the heat of a lot of the protests. And then there was a, there was a rise in counter protests where a lot of people um, were showing up. They kind of, they were, you know, there would be some sort of showdown in any given city in the, in the country where there's uh, people from the left and people from the right, and they're kind of going toe to toe. And the, the police tend to find themselves in the middle of this. And I remember the day after Breonna Taylor's trial, um, watching the news, and there was a woman that was standing, she said they had to actually move 100 feet away from the courthouse because of the gathering crowds, and she's standing giving a report of what just happened, and this woman walks behind her wearing a pink shirt, black pants, and holding a fully automatic rifle kind of across her chest, and she's just standing in the middle of the road as if this is a totally normal thing to do on a Wednesday. And when I saw that image, I was immediately reminded of these images from my own home country that we moved, you know, we moved here from Northern Ireland uh, at the very tail end of 1989 when I was five years old. And if you know anything about the, hist the recent history of Northern Ireland, that for decades it was torn about 
by what is called uh, now called the Troubles, um, which was uh, violent uprisings between uh, two different groups that are sort of divided by religious ideology, sort of divided by political affinity, and um, where you have on one side Protestants who tend to be loyal to the United Kingdom and want Northern Ireland to remain part of the, the United Kingdom, and then Catholics who want a reunited Ireland, that the Republic of Ireland in the South and the Northern Ireland North would be seen as one particular, you know, one whole country again. And so conflict kind of arose in the late 60s, mid 70s, and carried on for several decades. And you know, I've shared before how some of my earliest memories of church, our little church in Belfast, that was tall brick um, walls with barbed wire concreted into the top of it and pieces of broken glass in between the barbed wire because there was always fear of attack. Every window has, was barred up. It was very normal um, to see uh, full military regalia walking around with automatic rifles. And even before my time, in the heat of it in the 70s and the 80s, it was very common to see what in Northern Ireland were called paramilitary organizations, but here we might call them militias, um, usually men, usually usually young men who took up their own weapons or built their own weapons to fight against the government um, walking around in the broad daylight or, or attacking uh, the military, attacking the police, uh, setting off car bombs. Uh, I remember every year when we would go back to visit, it always seemed like in the 90s there was some police station that had been blown up and every window for blocks had been blown out uh, by this explosion and there was a lot of innocent bystanders that were killed in that. And when I saw this woman on the news in the United States, I was immediately reminded of all of these images of grotesquely armed police uh, in the streets, of citizens taking up weapons against one another. And I was reminded that, that myself and my family, we come from a country where that natural conclusion of trying to use violence in order to bring violence only brought more pain. And it's amazing talking to my parents about it and reflecting on it. And my mom said even, it's one of the amazing things is that part of the reason that we left was to escape that kind of civil environment and now 30 years on to see it playing out here is a very scary thing. And it's something that you and I should not get used to. It's not normal. It's not okay. And as Christians who are to be committed to peace, we need to recognize that there is nothing kingdom about that. Because we recognize as Christians the centrality of the story of God revealed in Jesus is Jesus on the cross. And what does that mean that Jesus on the cross saves the whole world? Jesus on the cross was, is us recognizing that God chose to rescue the world, not by beating us up, not by coming in and dominating us just with a bigger stick. This is the way that you and I seek to, to overcome conflict. Well, we'll just have bigger weapons and we'll amass more people and, and we'll be able to overcome whatever conflict there is with greater demonstrations of power and strength. No, God chose to enter into the world and to give himself over to powers and principalities, to give himself over to violence. That the God revealed in Jesus, especially Jesus on the cross, is the God who says to us, I would rather die than hurt you. 
I would rather die than an act of violence upon you. And that is the central claim of the Christian faith. That's why even here in our Advent wreath, kind of hanging in the background, we still have the image of Jesus on the cross because that image is never far away whenever we tell the Jesus story that we are always centered around his life, his death, and his resurrection. And it's fascinating to me that even in this Advent season, what we focus on is that God chose to enter into the world as an infant, as a baby, as powerlessness defined. Yet you and I know that whenever a baby enters into a space, there is a raw and majestic power that comes with that, but it's a power of fragility and vulnerability, not one that's demonstrated through violence. And so I believe, and I don't even like the term, but what we commonly call nonviolence, I believe that nonviolence is central to the Christian lifestyle. If you and I are called to incarnate the reality of, of Christ Jesus in our thoughts and in our words and in our deeds, I think it's actually our central ethic to live out of peace, to live as nonviolently as we can. One of my favorite Christian ethicists, um, Uncle Un uh, Stanley Hauerwas, had this to say. Our freedom is learning how to exist in the world, a violent world, at peace with ourselves and others. The violence of the world is but the mirror of the violence of our lives. We say we desire peace, but we have not the souls for it. We fear the boredom peace seems to imply. Even more, we fear the lack of control a commitment to peace would entail. As a result, the more we seek to bring under our control, the more violent we have to become to protect what we have. And the more violent we allow ourselves to become, the more vulnerable we are to challenges. And that's a hard word. You know, a lot of times we think peace is going to be this feel-good factor that we're looking at baby Jesus so meek and mild and being this little prince of peace. But then when we recognize what it is that peace demands of us, we kind of step back. It seems overwhelming. It seems too hard to live peace. It's, the, the world is too complicated. We say things like, well, you know, that idea of peace that Jesus has or these Christian writers have, it's a nice idea, but this is the real world. This is where I've got to get things done. And we begin to make judgment not, or make decisions not out of being a peaceful people, but out of just what we need to do in order to get our slice of the pie, in order just to protect ourselves from a violent world. But in that, perhaps, do we not contribute to the violence of the world rather than standing over and against it as ambassadors of the kingdom? And so I think another way maybe to say what Uncle Stanley is saying to us is that we are a peaceable people because we can't imagine being any other way. We make decisions in the world based on what we think the outcome is going to be. Another way to say that is that we try to control the narrative. We say, this is how I want things to turn out, or this is what's best for everybody in this. It's called utilitarianism, and that's how we just make decisions. That's how we make our ethical and moral decisions. 
One of the things that's rocked me this year as I've meditated on peace is that peace, living by peace, because peace is not the destination. Peace is the, the way in which we walk the journey itself. We cannot arrive at peace through violence. We have to walk to peace through peace. And the reality is, the terrifying reality is that living by peace may not make the world a less violent place. In fact, the world for a time might actually become more violent because you know what the world does not like? It does not like people who don't want to play by the rules. It doesn't like people who stand up against it in defiance and to say, no, we are going to live out the peace that has already been won for us in Christ Jesus. But you and I choose to live as peaceful people because we can't imagine living other, any other way. What we are doing is that we are revealing the world for what it actually is, that it is a place of inherent violence, that we swim in violence. We don't even recognize it on a personal, communal, national, global level. We are living with violence as the status quo. And it's when radically nonviolent, peaceable people exist in the midst of that that we begin to see the self-reflection that the world doesn't want to admit to, and that's where violence comes upon the nonviolent. We used to call these people martyrs, people who were so radically peaceful in the way that they chose to live in a violent world that they were killed for it. And even in the second century, Tertullian, one of the, the great church fathers, said it's the blood of the martyrs that is the seed of the church. That it was actually this radical commitment to nonviolence by the early church that became the greatest story, the greatest testimony that they could tell about this new reality that's found in Jesus and his new kingdom and his new way of living. And so often, you and I, because of our, the culture in which we've been raised, we read the prophet Isaiah, we read chapter 11, and we see all of these images, these contradictions, and say, well, that's just simply too good to be true. This is the real world. We need to wake up. We need to stop kind of having all this wishful thinking and just accept the world the way that it is and just play according to those rules. And when you and I do that, we're giving a stamp of approval to say, the way the world is today is acceptable. And that's actually what makes the world a violent place. Because violence is the lack of imagination. Violence is the lack of courage to believe that maybe there is another way, maybe there is another solution. And it requires faithfulness and patience. And maybe the immediate results that we're looking for aren't necessarily what comes along. But violence is the lack of imagination to try to form the world in the way that we want it to look, not the way that God does. There's a story of a pastor in a town in Indiana. There was a, um, there was a lot of shootings in their neighborhood at the time, and a lot of people in his church began to arm themselves. And he made this proclamation one Sunday that, that he was committing their entire church to a path of nonviolence. And he made the commitment to say, if you are killed, we will promise to take care of your family. And that story haunts me. And I'm not telling you this story as a prescription that that's what we're supposed to do. Although, if any of you want to turn in your weapons to me so that I can dispose of them, you're more than welcome. It's ryan at citybeautiful.ch. I will happily lead you into a more nonviolent lifestyle. 
But I want to tell you stories like that because we need that kind of prophetic imagination to, to, to consider perhaps there is other alternatives. Perhaps there are other ways to live this life that maybe actually are more faithful to Jesus than us just accepting the status quo of how things are today. You know, we live in a country that's 4% of the world's population, but it's 40% of the weapons. Do you feel more safe yet? Are we more peaceful because of that? Maybe this Christmas season, we need to open ourselves up to alternative realities. I remember years ago, sitting with a friend of mine on our porch in Nashville, just kind of talking through this new revelation that we had had of, of Christian nonviolence and what that truly means. And he had two little kids at the time, and he said, you know, in this kind of inevitable scenario that people bring up when we talk about nonviolence of what if somebody breaks into your house and, you know, they, they attack your wife and your kids, he said, I know what I would do is the right thing, but I'm not sure it's the Christian thing. And that haunts me. And I was so struck about how he labeled that. Because the right thing, when we make decisions out of the utilitarianness, what we think is going to be the outcome, may not always be the Christian thing. And that makes me wonder if Christ, as Christians, we make decisions out of a different place. Because as Christians, we're not pragmatists. We're not called just to do what makes sense or what has the best outcome. We're called to transcend all of that to this place called faithfulness. And I think you and I, we are called to be unreasonably faithful to God, regardless of what the outcome is. And yes, that is a very easy thing for me to say as a single man without any kids. I get it. I know that's easy. And I don't know what I would believe if I was in these kind of imaginary scenarios that people bring along. But I hope that it's in these places where things are still theoretical that we can work out the moral backbone that God forbid should any of us actually find ourselves in those kinds of situations, we still know how to respond to the violence of the world as Christians, little Christs, revealing the love of God on the cross. And it can be so theoretical. And especially when we blow it up to the global level and we're talking about nuclear weapons and, and conflicts between nations and all of this, and it's important that we're looking at that through the lens of Jesus as well. But I think to walk the path of peace, we need to start small. It's great to have theories when it's the national and international platform, but what about you right now in your little world? in your immediate relationships, in your family, in your friends, within this community. And so what relationship in your life currently are you maintaining order rather than pursuing peace? Do you realize that the call to order may actually be a form of violence? That a lot of times the call to order is to say, no, 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 let's keep everything the way that it is and avoid any sort of conflict, which may actually bury the places of pain and oppression that people are experiencing in the name of order. But actually, when Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, he's making a bold statement that in order to be peacemakers, ironically, we need to enter into conflict in order to pursue true peace. And what is that conflict? Is to say, I am not willing to allow the status quo to exist 
to keep things buried beneath the surface because I'm called to actually make peace, not just to keep peace. And I think being a peacemaker guarantees conflict. But conflict does not mean that there is not peace. Conflict may actually be the indication that we are on the path towards peace. Because I think what happens for you and I as Christians is that we lose ourselves when we give in to violence. But we also lose ourselves when our highest goal is just to maintain peace, to maintain order. Because we're not being true to who Jesus has called us to be. And again, dear St. John in Romans 14, he says, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. And so even the avoidance of conflict in and of itself can contribute to the violence between two people who are not seeing eye to eye, who are not living out that beautiful biblical call uh, to be peaceful people. And so brothers and sisters, it is your steadfast commitment to live out peace that will be the greatest witness that you have to the peaceable kingdom of God. People will look at the way that you interact with others, the way that you assess what's happening in our city, in our country, around the world, and it will be such a radical alternative that it will break open the status quo of violence and just maintaining a sense of order to enable people to believe that perhaps there is an alternative, but that alternative can only be birthed within us when we receive and incarnate the peace that we now have in Christ Jesus. And so I want us to spend some time praying for peace. And I've, I've kind of labeled several areas where we're going to start from the biggest scale we can and then move to the smallest. And we're just going to pray for peace. And I want you to ask God to give you the divine imagination to see kind of those seemingly contradictory images that we have in Isaiah of the wolf lying down with the lamb, of waters covering the sea, whatever that means to believe that there is something more that God has for store in each of those arenas. So I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to lead us through these different moments. So Heavenly Father, we recognize that you have called us to peace. And God, we confess that even we don't know what peace really means, that too often we've given up on peace because violence just seems more useful, or we've given up on peace by just avoiding conflict. Teach us in this Advent season to recognize what you mean when you say peace, what it is that has already been won for us in Christ Jesus, and give us the courage to seek to make that thing that's true but is hidden revealed in our thoughts and our words and our deeds. And so first, let us pray for peace on the earth. Just ask the Lord to give you a vision of what peace on the earth might look like or specific areas in the earth that you think are lacking peace and begin to pray into those things. Secondly, let's pray peace on our nation. I want you just to think back in your mind's eye over the past year. 
Where have you seen violence in our country? Physical violence, verbal of, um, violence, violence online, violence in the streets, wherever you've seen it, ask the Lord to give you a vision of peace in our nation and then turn that into a prayer. Thirdly, let's pray for our city, for Orlando, for Central Florida. Make it a little bit more local. Where do you see either a lack of togetherness or straight out violence from one group to the next? Let's pray peace over our city. Next, we pray for peace in our community, City Beautiful Church. Where do you see dividing walls of hostility within our community, between different groups of people? Where do we uh, avoid each other or straight out enact violence upon one another based on political alliances, socioeconomic status, religious beliefs, whatever it might be, just pray for those dividing walls of hostility to come down, that our church specifically might be this incarnation of peace on earth. And next, bringing it a little bit more personal. What about your friends and your family, the people that you're close, most closely connected to? Where is there a lack of peace? Where is there an uneasy impasse in the name of just keeping the peace or maintaining a sense of order that needs to be addressed? Where has there been violence of word and deed? that has pushed someone away, that has made someone feel less than. Just allow the Holy Spirit to reveal to you where you don't have peace in your relationships. Finally, 
Where do you feel a lack of peace within yourself? Is there discord between you and God? Is there a sense of avoidance within yourself, a dividing wall of hostility between your heart and your mind, your soul and your body? Ask the Lord to bring peace to you so that you might be a whole and holy person this Advent season. God, convict us day by day to recognize that peace is not only the journey that we are called to, but also the path, the way in which we are called to walk the journey. May we be a peaceable people because we cannot imagine any other way of living because visions of your kingdom incarnate in and through us are so at the forefront of our minds and our hearts that we want to live out of radical, nonviolent faithfulness to you. Pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I don't know if that's the sermon that you were expecting in this Advent season, but I feel like it's what the Lord had for us. And I just want to say, I remain convinced of this vision of peace, not because I'm a peaceful person, but because I'm a violent person. And I know that I'm being called higher. And that's okay, I think we all are. But it is really about us being day by day, being led deeper into the peaceable kingdom and away from the violence of our surrounding culture. And so I wanna release you today with the words of this ancient Celtic blessing that contains so beautifully this image of peace in the midst of the storms and the chaos so that we might come home, come back together with these stories of what Christ has done in and through us. And so may the peace of the Lord Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness. May he protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. God bless. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.